Corinthians chapter 4, begin reading at verse 7. In light of where we are as a church and in time, I want to preach a sermon this morning on growth. It's a call to growth. And um, we'll start reading in verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believe, therefore I speak. We also believe, therefore also we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are, underline this, amazing statement. For all things are for your sakes, that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Not long ago I I saw a family I hadn't seen quite a while. Last time I saw them, their little boy was just a little lad. He'd grown. And uh, so I, I said, man, you've really grown. Man, you're getting big. And his face just lit up like the sun. I could tell that pleased him, so I went on, you know. Got a good thing going, just keep it going. I said, I bet you're almost as tall as your mother. He said, show him, Mom. And so they, they got back to back, and he was stretching, you know, his neck, trying to get up, you know, same height with his mother. That, that to some people, growth is really, really important. To everybody who sees growth as an evidence of life and health, growth is really important. That's why that growth ought to be vital to this church. For growth really is is really the the essential of, of being alive. As a matter of fact, Richard Scott says that growth is the only evidence of life. I believe it was... Norman Mailer, who one time said that every moment of one's existence, he is growing into a little more or he is retreating into a little less. 
Every moment of one's existence, one lives a little more or he dies a little bit. Now, because I don't want us to retreat into anything less than what we have, and I sure don't want us to die, to start the process of of death, this call this morning is a call to growth, to life, to keep on going, to keep on moving, to get up and, and to move on and to be no longer satisfied with what we have to to, to go on because there's nothing static in this world, nothing. There is a restless impulse at the center of this universe that keeps saying to us, you gotta keep moving, you gotta get up and go on. Growth is essential to life. And here's how we do it. We grow out and not in. Now I need to be very careful at this point to to make sure that when I say that we need to grow and grow out and not in, that I'm not talking about becoming, you know, mesmerized by numbers and to want to be the biggest church in town, you know, or the you know, have the most numbers of anybody on Sunday morning and anywhere else in, 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 in the county. Now I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a kind of a selflessness or an empathy, an outwardness that, that reaches its arms out to embrace a world that's suffering. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a kind of an insight that, that is able to understand what the real priorities are in life, which, which Paul makes very clear in this text when he, when he says that we always carry about in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that Jesus might be manifested in us. I mean, he's, he's saying we die, we found the secret of real living, and that's dying for others. I mean, you know, some dying to self that others might, might live. Now, there's a new book out called, I Prayed, entitled, I Prayed Myself Thin. You can tell I haven't read the book. I prayed myself then. Now this book is about this kind of a, a overweight person, kind of a wallflower, uh, who, who decided that she would take this uh, obesity and, and, and give it to God in prayer. And all of a sudden, you know, and that didn't take long in prayer, she was transformed into this Cinderella that was the, the desire of every eligible bachelor in town. I mean, he just kind of, God just kind of cast her out into the fast lane all of a sudden. And the book is, I Prayed Myself In. Now, the real issue this morning is not can God deliver us to our best self. That's not the real issue. The real issue is what is the main agenda of God in this world? What is his main agenda? And I'm here to tell you, in contrary to what you might see on some television programs, the main agenda of God is not making people beautiful and rich. The main agenda of God is to transform people into those witnesses who can bring glory to Him. And that should be our main agenda. Our main agenda is not so that we can have a beautiful place or be beautiful people. Our main agenda is that we might have an arm that reaches out to embrace the world that hurts and is ugly and unlovable. During World War II, a French doctor coined a name that he gave to a certain disease that showed up in those prison camps. He called it barbed wire fever, barbed wire disease. Its symptom was an appalling 
futility, a meaninglessness of existence. And it didn't matter what they planned for these prisoners of war, they could never banish this futility from their minds, the, the reality of that barbed wire. And, and, and they lost the desire to live because they lost the reason for living. And life had squeezed itself down to just them, you see. And they were prisoners, not just of the wire and the guards and the, and the tower. They were prisoners of their own futility. Some of you have been infected with the same disease. And what I'm talking about is growing beyond this self-absorption that we need. And we need to stop thinking only of ourselves and our own problems and our own needs and the raw deal life has given us. And somehow we need to lift up our eyes beyond this self to a world that tragically needs us. And that's not easy because our culture points its finger out, not out toward others, but in toward the big eye, you see. And Charles Colson calls this, defines this as ontological individualism. And he says it's the menace of our age, this idea that there is some freedom in human isolation espoused by such philosophers as Sartre when he said one time, hell is other people. And because there are no really moral absolutes or value connections between one decision and the next, it's just as right for me to ignore my neighbor as to help him. It's just as right for me to, to cheat my neighbor as to be honest with him or to kill him as to let him live. For after all, I can't worry about you. I'm, I've got to take care of myself, you see. And Colson calls on the church to transcend this culture rather than to be conformed by it so that we can return to the community, to the family, to the church as the main focus, you see. Where we get outside this little I and me category and we begin to make decisions concerning the needs of others. I'm talking about an outgoingness, an outwardness that opens up its arms and sees other people and embraces them. Secondly, we need to grow, um, look here, just let that slip by. We need to grow up, but we don't need to grow old. It's a good thing I brought my notes. Grow up, but don't grow old. Now, the Apostle Paul makes an astounding statement when, when he says that this outer man perishes, but the inner man is renewed. I mean, this old body suffers wear and tear and decay, but on the inside, we're getting, we're getting newer, and, and, and it's being renewed. So that the hair gets gray, but the spirit doesn't. And if that's true then, we play, in so many places, we're placing the emphasis in the wrong place. I mean, the cosmetic industry is a billion dollar industry, and you know, everybody wants a naughty body. But all the, prop, all the effort and all the energy and all the money we spend on this body, it's not going to keep it from getting old and it's not going to keep it from decaying. I mean, the outer body, the outer man is perishing, he said. But this essential self, this person who lives inside this shell is being renewed, is getting younger. What an astounding thing. You know what I'm finding in increasing amount? I'm finding people who are weary, who are overworked and overtaxed, 
who feel a need to quit, to drop out, and you ask them, how, how, what's going on in your life now? And they'll answer something like this, I need to cut back, I need to, I need to slow down, I'm overextended, I need to, I need to, I'm burnt out. You never hear anybody say, I need to do more. It's always, I've got too much, I'm just overworked. And what I'm finding in increasing numbers is fatigue and exhaustion and the loss of passion. People who feel squeezed by schedules and, and harassed by, by deadlines and they, they're exhausted and weary. Don't you see that? I mean, most of us this morning are running on empty. We have a bad habit over at our house. I, I was the first one that started it, but to keep on driving my car after the gauge shows empty, I found out that you can, you can go a whole day sometimes if you're not going to New York City. You can go a whole day after that baby gets on empty. And I found a way that, that you can keep driving, you know, uh, if, you'll, if it starts sputtering, you can just kind of weave the car a little bit. <laughs> And that'll, that'll slosh a little gas around somewhere and that'll get you to the next. And if you'd, if you'd started down uh, Arkansas last Monday morning, you, you'd seen a red Cadillac just kind of weaving from one side of the street to the next. I wasn't drunk. I, I was just trying to get to the next gas station. I mean, she was totally empty. Now I taught my wife that trick. She never fills up with gas. And yet, not long ago, she got the minibus and took her Sunday school class to the gallery at Ice Gate. Kids are here, they know. And, and it was on empty, but she got a lot of miles to go after it's on empty. And so she's coming out of the gallery at rush hour traffic, and it sucker started sputtering. And, ran, and she, if you'd have been behind the minibus, <laughs> you would have seen the minibus weaving and swerving on, on LBJ trying to get to the next gas station. We all know that feeling. That's got to be the most frightening feeling. Feel, the, feel that sucker running out of gas on Central Expressway during rush hour traffic. Are you listening? An unfilled spiritual tank is a disaster. And I'm speaking to some people this morning who know the terrible feeling that comes when you just begin to sputter and cough and you just kind of pull over to the shoulder and you realize you just can't go any farther. You're burned out. And it's totally unlike the Apostle Paul when he said, my inner man is just getting younger and newer. Totally unlike him. And totally unlike our Lord. He had a schedule that would drive anybody crazy. And we agree with J.B. Phillips when he said Jesus, to read about Jesus, to, to read how calm and peaceful he was, is salutary and inspiring. He, he just had this calm, inner peace and, and this tranquility. Now, how did these guys find that? How did they get that? Well, you don't even know, you don't even have to ask that question. You know the answer to that question. You know that these people found this table of inwardness where they supped with God and He renewed them in the inner man. Have you come, have you found that place of inwardness where you've come, where you come daily and God feeds you and you never get old? 
and you're just as vital and just as excited about God as the first day and just as fresh in your service of God as you were the first day. I mean, you don't have to get old. You can take your faith into biological old age. That's true in the secular world as well as the spiritual world. Benjamin Franklin was 80 years old when he signed the Declaration of Independence. Michelangelo was 80 when he drew the drawings of the Sistine Chapel. Oliver Wendell Holmes was 90 years old. He learned that Congress had passed legislation to, 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 to wipe out his pension. Somebody asked him if he could survive, he could make it. He said, sure, I can make it. I just won't be able to put as much up for my old age. I turned on Channel 7 the other night and I saw Norman Vincent Peale on there, vital and thriving man of God. When he was 78, he had, seven, he had four offices from which he maintained four thriving business entities. He worked 12 hours a day and he was just as vital the other night as I remembered him when I was a 20-year-old boy. I, turned on, I picked up the newspaper the other day and I read where well, a woman 72 years of age received her degree from University of Dallas with honors. You don't have to get old. It's time for us to listen to the challenge of Eric Erickson when he said, all right, we need to make a decision. Is it generativity or is it stagnation? Are we going to make an impact on our world or are we just going to sit down and wait to die? That's the question I ask you this morning. Are you going to make an impact on your world or are you just going to sit down and die and wait to die? You need to grow up. third thing we need to do is that we need to grow strong but not bitter. Now when you chronicle the story of this man's life, it's an amazing thing what he endured. He got, he got it from every angle. He was beaten. He was abused. He was imprisoned. One time he was stoned and there's some interpreters who believe that he actually died at that time. How do you keep from it? I mean, they stoned him. I, you know, you won't read any, anywhere anyone who endured the blows of life more than the Apostle Paul. And the question is, how did this man survive? That's not the big question. The big question is, how did he survive this without getting bitter? I mean, how did he endure these kinds of things and didn't get bitter? I challenge you to look through the New Testament and find me a place where the Apostle Paul ever lashed out to, against life's blows and bitterness. He didn't. How do, you, how, do you do, how do you maintain that? Well, a little bit of the answer is found in the text when he said, we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. And that word look there is an interesting word in the Greek. It means to become obsessed with, to focus one's energy and attention on constantly. And what he's saying is this, the reason why I've not grown bitter is that I don't just focus on these things that you can see. He focused on the things that are not seen. Vance Havner said that in this day and time in which we live, we need the height of a rhinoceros and the heart of a child. The problem, he said, is how do you hide in your heart? How do you hide in, how do you harden your hide? You say that. Easy for you to say. How do you harden your hide and not harden your heart? 
You tell me. How do you keep your heart from getting hard? Are you able to see beyond the things that are seen? Where do you put the focus of life, focus of your attention? Is it on those things which are seen? Or on those things which are not seen? Helen Keller says that the things that you can cannot see with your eye and, and hear with your ear are the greater reality. And so a master teacher was taking his pupils through a walk in a fruit grove. He was blind. He was called the blind master. And he was teaching as they walked. And he tilted his head back to miss, to miss a limb on one of those trees. And one of his pupils said, how did you know that limb was there? He said, oh, just seeing with your eyes, just one sensation. I heard the singing in the limb. He said, close your eyes and tell me what you hear. He said, do you hear your own heartbeat? Do you hear the footfall of that monk across the courtyard? Do you hear the grasshopper at your feet? One boy opened his eyes and he said, how do you hear all that? He, the blind master said, how do you not hear it? Let me ask you a question. Has life hardened your heart? Has life's blows caused you no longer to be able to hear the footfall of the weary? Have the blows of life caused you no longer to see the tear in the sorrowing? And so a lady told her pastor, as she getting, he was getting ready to preach his first sermon, the first week he was there, she said, Pastor, Sunday morning, we're going to be sitting out in your congregation. All of us are going to have beautiful new dresses on and, and, and suits on, and we're going to have smiling faces. Don't let that fool you, for there's a bucket of tears underneath everybody's heart. Has life so hardened you that you can't see that little pail of suffering underneath his heart, her heart? One last thought, please. We need to grow some eternal dividends. And so the Apostle Paul says that this momentary affliction works for us an eternal weight of glory. And what he's saying is this. While we're in this time-space arena, getting all this stuff happen to it, happening to us, we're, we're, we're laying up this enduring treasure. Somebody said that the martyrs used to march off to the stake singing, the stars shine above the storms. I want to ask you, what are you laying up above the stars? I heard of a guy that came to this country, didn't have a thing. He got off a boat in New York City and he started to work and he, started, he, 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 he developed, he, he, he owns his own restaurant now, successful business. And his son came to him one day. His son was an accountant. He had children while he was here, and he, one of them became an accountant. He saw that his father's accounts payable were in a cigar box. His accounts receivable were in a spindle. And the cash he had was in some old beat-up cash register. And he said, Dad, I don't know how you take care of business like that. 
He said, I don't know how you handle a business like that. He said, how do you tell what your profits are? And the old immigrant said, when I got off the boat, all I had was a pair of pants. He said, now I've got a son that's a doctor, your sister is a teacher, and you're an accountant. He said, I've got a good business, a nice home, and a beautiful car. He said, I just add all that up and subtract the pants, and that's my profit. <laughs> I mean, that's simple enough. All you do is just add that stuff up and subtract the pants, and you get the profit. Now, you can do this better than anybody else. Now, listen to me. You can do this better than anybody else. You can draw a bottom line to your life this morning and determine what is there left of enduring profit. I said something last Sunday about the tragedy of dying in vain. I want to tell you a greater tragedy, and that's to live in vain. I suppose one of the saddest things I have ever can remember is going to home of a man about every other week to help him die. He, he, he was a deacon of my church. He, he was kind of a cowboy. And he didn't want to die in a hospital. He had an inoperable cancer of the stomach. He wanted to die at home, so he, he's at home, and I'd go by and see him about every other week. And, and I can remember as he got down to the, to the last... He began to worry about whether he's saved or not. And he began to talk about the fact that he was afraid now that he'd come to the end of life, that he had lived in vain. That's the saddest thought I know this morning is for a person to come to a place where he is confronted by the fact that he has nothing in his life of enduring significance. When does that happen? Maybe it's at age 39 when you're sitting in a, at the funeral of some guy that's the same age as you and you pick up an obituary and all of a sudden just like a, like a bolt it just hits you that you're mortal. Maybe it's at age 47 when like a flash sometime, sitting in a red light, all of a sudden it just comes over you. I've, I've lived in vain. Or maybe it's at age 62 when you walk out and retire and you walk away from that business for the last time. And as you walk away and get in your car and turn on the key and, walk, and drive away for the first time, it just kind of comes over you. What about my life is of enduring significance? And it comes in several ways, but the, but the language is always the same. What a tragedy to sacrifice your life on an altar of work and to sacrifice to the gods of luxury and go daily to the temples and offer sacrifices to the gods of pleasure and power and prestige and then realize that it's all in vain and that you know you have no more inner peace or no more calm than you had when you first started. All of it's just in vain. And what a tragedy to one day just start driving down a road and you're going down this road and you're marking the miles, mile after mile after mile, and then all of a sudden it just kind of dawns on you. The road goes nowhere. It's going nowhere. And there's no end to it. 
You're just marking the miles, driving yourself on and on and on. And what is there to, to say is of enduring profit? Zero. What a tragedy. You say, what's the answer to that? Giving my life to Jesus, is that going to solve it? Is that going to mean my life is automatically significant? If you're smart enough to answer that question, ask that question, you're smart enough to know the answer is no. Just giving your life to Jesus doesn't automatically make your life significant. It's like what the missionary said when he told about a man getting lost in the jungle one night and he was stumbling over roots and trees and he was getting slapped in the face with branches and the sounds of the night and the jungle were enough to scare anybody to death and all of a sudden he stumbled out on the road. Said the missionary, his wanderings were over and the journey had just begun. I suppose that more than any other preacher in Durant, Oklahoma, I speak to young people more than any other. What a privilege. I preached out at the BSU Vespers the other night. Now, I, I, I know there are a lot of times when I you know, completely bomb out, but just something happens when I speak to those college students. It's the most fun anything I do. And we were just getting with it the other night, Thursday night out there, and it just kind of all of a sudden it just kind of dawned on me while I was talking. Wouldn't it be great if right at the first, right at the first, young people could see that all of life that does not have as its, at its reference point the Lord Jesus Christ and His will, all the rest of that life will be lived in vain. And so I'm calling this morning on us to begin a journey. The wandering is over and the journey begins when you commit your life to Jesus Christ. And he becomes the reference point for that life. It's time to get up and move on to an outwardness that reaches others. To a maturity that does not get bitter. To a strength that encompasses compassion. To an investment that will outlast the years. Let's pray together. Now, Father, for every decision, we pray, they shall be made in light of your, your perfect will, your desire, what pleases you. the decision of the church to move on, to grow, to reach out, to minister to others instead of to itself. I pray, Lord, for a decision that would call young men and women to a realization that any road that leads away from you is a road to nowhere. 
as Peter said, an untoward road. God, I pray for decisions that will focus on what you desire for us as individuals and as a church in this moment of decision. Because I pray in Jesus' name. There are three invitations. The little boy this morning gave his life to Christ in this service. That's one. A decision to accept Jesus as your personal Savior. The, you know, it's not, it's not all over when that happens. That's not the back end, it's the front end. You begin a lifelong following of Jesus Christ when you give your heart and life to Him. I ask you this morning to come and join the church or to rededicate yourself to being and doing what God wants you to do. What you've promised before and you haven't done. What you've said in the past you haven't kept, perhaps. So those are the invitations we invite you into as we stand as the choir sings you come.